Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. It's a confusing affair. It's a highly political affair. In the year 1756, uh, when really in a two-year span that the British Empire was really coming up short in most of their engagements against the French and their allies around the world, um, the Catanning Raid was their lone bright spot. That's a clip from my lecture on the Catanning Raid at the Sir William Johnson and the Wars for Empire Conference, held this weekend at the Fort Plains Museum, and I'm happy to share it with you today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. That snippet was a clip from my lecture given this weekend at the Sir William Johnson and the War for Empire Conference in Johnstown, New York. I gave a lecture on my 2016 book, War in the Peaceable Kingdom, The Catanning Raid of 1756, one of the seminal moments in colonial America during the French and Indian War, with a special impact on the colony of Pennsylvania and the larger scope of the conflict. We had a wonderful conference this weekend. I was very honored to be on the stage with some of the best minds of our field. Everyone had really great presentations, and if you'll indulge me, I'd like to share mine with you today. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our lecture. We're going to talk today about uh, the Catanning Raid of 1756. Um, It's a confusing affair. It's a highly political affair. In the year 1756, uh, when really in a two-year span that the British Empire was really coming up short in most of their engagements against the French and their allies around the world, um, the Catanning Raid was their lone bright spot. They minted military medallions for the, for the uh, victory. In fact, one of the very first, if not the first, military medallions ever minted in North America was in its honor. They allowed a great acclaim upon the man who led the raid on Catanning, which we'll talk about what that is, John Armstrong. Um, it was hailed as one of the great victories at a time when Britain really needed one. Problem was, John Armstrong himself didn't really view it as glorious as some might have made it out to be. And he believed that a lot of the celebration of the battle was nothing more than politics. Uh, I do have some bad news for everyone. I am going to talk about politics today. Uh, but the good news is it's 18th century politics, so we're not, you know, we have enough of uh, the, the, the contemporary version of that. Uh, and, you know, Karl von Clausewitz, the Prussian military philosopher and commander, wrote very famously uh, that politics, uh, excuse me, that war is merely politics by other means. And uh, I open up my book called War in the Peaceable Kingdom with that very quote, because I think it fits very, um, uh, very aptly in this story. 
<clears throat> so we're going to begin with a, a myth that a lot of folks in Pennsylvania uh, really adhere to, uh, and it's one that I, I say I'll disagree with a bit. Um, and folks in, in New York and New England might not be aware of, but it's the story of William Penn's peaceable kingdom. Um, colonial Pennsylvania is often lauded in, in early America as a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, um, holy experiment of Quakerism. And that was largely true. William Penn came to America in 1681 as a member of a persecuted religious minority, very intimidating and scary one called the Society of Friends, um, that of course we call the Quakers. And he wanted to make a place in the New World uh, that was free and offered equality of opportunity to everyone who came here. And for that reason, in the seven, in the really the early 1700s, all the way through the 1750s, there really wasn't a place outside of New Amsterdam, right outside of what we call New York, uh, that was as ethnically diverse as Pennsylvania. Uh, Penn called it his peaceable kingdom. And I have some numbers here to bear that out, just if you want to have an idea of what we're dealing with. Um, Pennsylvania in the colonial period was, uh, say, if you dropped in in 1755, uh, upwards of 18,000 people. And they were a blend of the English, which typically enclaved themselves around Philadelphia, uh, the Germans, the Palatines, which you would typically find uh, around Lancaster. Uh, you had the Scots-Irish, who huddled around the frontier community of Carlisle. And you actually had a number of Swedes in what Pennsylvania referred to as its three lower counties, which today is the state of Delaware. Um, it was a very diverse place, uh, and there was a sense of, um, of, of opportunity and equality in the, um, uh, in the colony. But I would argue that only a fraction of that, I think, extended from the proprietor of the colony, William Penn himself. Um, because before Penn arrived, that whole region, as well as New Jersey and, of course, moving north, Manhattan Island, was under the control of the Lenny Lenape, uh, people that would later be called the Delaware Indians. Um, this region was known as Lenapehawking, which was the, you know, the land of the Lenape, the Lenape's sort of worldview. Uh, and they were not bit players in this region. Uh, the idea that William Penn kind of arrived, these other Europeans came here, and native peoples were sort of an obstacle in the way is one that I think has plagued history for a very long time. Uh, but under a, just a very quick uh, examination of primary sources will fall away. Because long before William Penn arrived, 50 years before William Penn arrived, uh, a group of people uh, did come to the region, uh, the Swedes, and they were coming here, settling in what is today modern Delaware, uh, and attempting to establish a colony uh, to, to implant their worldview. Um, and they became a little too aggressive. They became a little too overbearing. And the Lenape uh, wiped them completely off the map in North America in an event known as the Spawnendale Massacre. And if you uh, visit Lewis, Delaware today, you'll see this building, the Spawnendale Museum. Uh, it's, a, it's a monument to that, that moment when... Europeans arrived, uh, the Lenape very generously allowed them to establish themselves and, and build their you know, small plantation. Uh, these settlers began to grow and grow, taking more land, and the Lenape proactively eliminated them. 
We're also going to see in, of course, 1675 for you New England folks, uh, a similar circumstance happen in King Philip's War when a huge percentage of the Massachusetts colony was uh, attacked, burned, and destroyed, of course, by, by King Philip, by Medicom. And we'll see a similar circumstance in Bacon's Rebellion uh, in 1676 uh, in Virginia. So what we're getting there is this very real sort of narrative of Europeans coming to the New World and establishing themselves firmly in this vacant territory with these Indians as background characters. We're seeing that really eliminated uh, with pretty harsh prejudice to the point that when William Penn arrives in 1681, uh, he sees that if his colony is going to be successful, uh, he's it's going to be successful largely at the pleasure of the native peoples who live in this region. Again, uh, Delaware, Massachusetts, and Virginia had already been plagued by uh, this idea of a sort of a, a native rebellion or native retraction to European growth. <clears throat> so when William Penn comes here, he's coming with almost that spirit of fear in mind that he has to play this game uh, very carefully if his colony is going to be successful. Now, the way it's traditionally told in Pennsylvania is William Penn arrives to what is today Philadelphia. He establishes his city. He wants to make a colony for all peoples. All peoples have, according to Quaker belief, the inner light of God inside of them. So they all deserve equal treatment. And when he comes here, what does he do? He meets <clears throat> with native peoples along the Delaware River at a place called the Shackamox and Elm. And he'll sign the Shackamox and Treaty, which he pays the Lenape the going rate for their land, something that no one ever did before. You know, he's not trading them trinkets. He's not offering them uh, items alone. He's, gonna, he's going to pay them for this. And it sets up this narrative in Pennsylvania that William Penn's peaceable kingdom, this, this policy of equality, was really set forth by Penn himself. But when you read Penn's writings, you see that, again, he was coming here very afraid in 1681 uh, of, or at least weary, maybe we'll say, uh, of, of, of Lenape power when he arrives. Uh, and here's some of his writings before he leaves. He'll say uh, in a letter to the Lenape before his arrival, now this great God hath been pleased to make me concerned in your part of the world. And the king of the country where I live hath given me a great province therein. But I desire to enjoy it with your love and consent that we may always live together as neighbors and friends. I have great love and regard towards you. And I desire to win and gain your love and friendship by a kind, just, and peaceable life. And if anything shall be, <clears throat> if anything shall offend you or your people, you shall have a full and speedy satisfaction. So Penn is not coming here discovering these native peoples and bestowing grace upon them. It's not happening. Um, <clears throat> native peoples are essential players uh, in the establishment and, and really the, um, the prosperity of a lot of these English colonies early on. That's kind of your brief introduction to Pennsylvania. Um, because the politics of Pennsylvania are going to be uh, and have everything to do with what we talk about today. Okay, um, if there was benevolence there, if there was a sense of peace and admiration, it dies with William Penn. Shortly after William Penn establishes Pennsylvania, he will go back to England. Um, he's going to die. His children will inherit the colony. Pennsylvania was what we call a proprietary colony. Uh, joined by Maryland, meaning that 
a, a family ruled and inherited the land. Um, as his as his children take over the colony, they're less open, less benevolent, we'll say, toward native peoples, and we begin to see them engage in a series of, you know, this is not a technical term, but uh, maybe called land swindles uh, that are designed to take as much land from the Lenni Lenape, the Delaware, as possible. Very famously, the walking purchase of 1737. Now, the ancient Lenape Hawking, the ancient Delaware homeland, is shrinking at a rapid rate. And the Lenape people are becoming a refugee society, similar to the Shawnee from South Carolina, uh, North Carolina, right? They're being pushed out of their homeland. And we're going to see an important split occur here that I think it's very important to bear out for understanding the events of 1756. And it's really an internal debate and dispute amongst the Lenape themselves. Is there a place for Europeans in their world or not? We're going to see a group move uh, not far westward, a little bit westward to the Susquehanna River Valley, which is today the middle of Pennsylvania. And we'll call them the Eastern Delaware. And the Eastern Delaware are led by a very prominent chief named Tita Skung. And Tita Skung believes that he can live alongside the English, maybe not amongst the English, but he can border them. They can be beneficial partners in trade and partnership moving forward. But there's another faction, and I would call them uh, the radical faction of the Lenape, that don't really see any future uh, for the English living side by side with the Lenape. And we'll call them the Western Delaware. The Western Delaware are far more conservative, uh, far more hawkish when it comes to war, and are very, very intensely in favor of total independence uh, from the English world. And they're going to be led by a figure named Shingas, his name there at the bottom, and Tewe. Tewe sort of being his maybe, I don't want to say second in command, but regarded as a lower sachem beneath Shingas. And they're going to re relocate even farther west, much farther west than really anyone had anticipated. And this is about 1730. Uh, and they're going to go all the way to the Allegheny River Valley, which is near my home city of Pittsburgh. I really should have had a map up here for you, I guess. I took for granted that um, I, I didn't have that. So, so if you can imagine that, you're going to have these two contingent of Lenape peoples. One who see peace as, uh, as possible, who see trade and engagement as a way toward prosperity, and a more radical faction that are going to move to the distant West. Isolation is their overall goal. Again, it's best embodied between these two leaders. Okay? That's an important political division amongst the Lenape peoples. But it is not the only political division that exists in Pennsylvania. Uh, because you're going to see with that ethnic mix of people, uh, very distinct um, uh, political leanings develop there as well. Philadelphia is dominated by English Quakers. Again, the colony was founded by William Penn. That only makes sense. Um, there's also going to be Germans there, Palatines. And the Palatines, and I don't want to overstate this, tend to lean more toward the Quaker perspective. Quakers are pacifists by religious decree. They believe in total nonviolence. The Palatines don't have that kind of agreement, but politically they tend to lean more towards that. The Scots-Irish in Pennsylvania, who are going to live uh, in the middle part of the state, on the frontier itself, sort of the front line between the European world and the Indian world, the Scots-Irish are far more in favor of a strong, proactive defense. 
All right, the idea of peaceful nonviolence that just does not play into their worldview. They're very, uh, they're very insular people. They like to handle their own business. Um, and again, you know, William Penn has kind of established this multi-ethnic kingdom, but it's 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 very divisive in many ways, especially politically. These factions exist more or less in harmony, if there's ever such a thing, uh, for really the period of 1720 to 1750 in Pennsylvania. Um, but the coming of the Seven Years' War, the coming of the French and Indian War, right, those early rumblings beginning in 1753 and 1754 are going to start to fracture the colony of Pennsylvania politically. It's going to make people take sides, and a lot of it is on the issue of defense. For Indian peoples, a lot of it's on the issue of who will you side with or maybe who offers you the better, uh, the better outcome when the war begins. The government of Pennsylvania is divided into a political partisan world, go figure. Political parties don't get along very well. Okay, They don't get along today. They don't get along then. And those political parties are going to be listed here. Uh, the Quaker Party, which dominates the assembly, and the proprietary party, uh, which is really the Penn family and their their constituent allies. Um, all of these kind of political pieces I'm just laying out for you so you can understand why the military response we're going to talk about, the Catanning Raid, is so difficult to bring to life uh, and viewed in such contentious ways uh, after its, its creation. <coughs> The man in the middle of all of this political chaos between the Lenape, between the Quaker and proprietary parties, between the English, the Germans, and the Scots-Irish, this whole Venn diagram of confusion, that is William Penn's peaceful kingdom, Pennsylvania, is of all people going to be Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin by this time is really a man on the rise in Philadelphia. He hasn't gone to England yet for his long stay. That's going to come later. He finds himself as a key primary voice of the Quaker party. Now you might say, Benjamin Franklin, not a Quaker, right? So why is he in that party? Well, by this point, the Quaker party is much more of a, a populist party in Pennsylvania. They dominate the Pennsylvania legislature, the Pennsylvania Assembly. Uh, if you want to be someone politically, it's very hard to get elected as a member of the proprietary party. It's a small, wealthy, landed group. So Benjamin Franklin represents this populist wing of the party, and his big drive, his big interest is to, go figure, uh, raise taxes on the rich. See, as part of William, Plan, William Penn's uh, entire uh, sort of construction of Pennsylvania, his family maintained a series of uh, really a large amount of land, uh, and the rule is you can never tax Penn family land. It just doesn't happen. And the governor who, who the Penn family appoints at the penalty of, of jail time, believe it or not, has to make an agreement that he'll never sign a law that taxes the Penn family land. That's going to be important because those taxes are going to be required to someday raise an army. So what we're going to see with Benjamin Franklin is he, he really goes against the grain of a lot of the people in his party. As the Seven Years' War is beginning to develop, he believes in a strong military response, right? We saw him uh, in the previous decade with the uh, the, the Pennsylvania Associators, right? He kind of developed this militia unit on his own. He's going to be a person that has to fight members of his own party. 
He's going to be a person that has to fight members of the other party um, in order to get some sort of military response in place. So if all of this Pennsylvania political talk is lost on you, you all know Ben Franklin. And he's probably just as confused as everybody else. Um, but he's very much the man in the middle here. Okay. <clears throat> much of this debate is centered around a large uh, Indian village along the Allegheny River Valley called, the Indians call, Kitani. Uh, the English will call this Kitanning. Now, we talked about the western Delaware, right, moving deep into the Allegheny River Valley. They're going to establish a couple different villages. Some of them are uh, well-known. You might be familiar with Logstown, Kuskuskies, uh, Sawkunk, Pimatuning, Punxsutawney. All of these villages are on the Allegheny River. Um, they're all settlements of these refugee western Delawares, but also some Shawnee coming up from the Carolinas. All right, this is the homeland that these people are trying to make for themselves in the wake of early British colonization. Kitanning is the biggest. It's the nucleus of them all, right? We know how it works today. You have a big city in a region. Small towns develop all around it that sort of economically feed off of it. Uh, that's a good way to think of Catanning. Now, that's the modern Catanning today. Um, and you still get a really good sense of what it looks like. It's right along the river. It's a relatively flat floodplain with some hills uh, to the east there in the background. And this will become this primary center of diplomatic, economic, and yes, unfortunately, military action uh, in the Ohio country during the early parts of the of the Seven Years' War. Now, throughout this time, if you would have been in Catanning, you would have seen a couple things. You would have seen a great deal of uh, uh, different warriors from different native nations moving in and out of here, but you would have also seen a tremendous French presence because by 1756, Fort Duquesne has been built two years earlier, and Fort Duquesne, not a grand military outpost by any stretch, was really designed as an, a, a post of influence they're going to filter gunpowder and ammunition and muskets and, and alcohol, right, out of that place to kind of entice the local native peoples of the region to their side. Catanning was one of their central focal points. If you would leave Fort Duquesne, sail northward on the Allegheny River, it would ultimately take you to Catanning. So there was a regular uh, communication, we'll say, between the French at Fort Duquesne uh, and Catanning during the 17 years of 1753, 1754, uh, and ultimately 1755. But the native peoples of the region, the western Delaware amongst them, were always very reluctant to openly announce siding with the French or the English for reasons that even in this, in this place we're very familiar with. Which side offers the best deal? Which side is less likely to take your land in the aftermath? How can you play these sides off of each other for the greater... Uh, Indian good. These are all questions that uh, faced, amongst other peoples, the Delaware who lived in Catanning. That choice is ultimately going to have to be made. They're going to have to take a side. Um, and an event to come in 1755, I would argue, is going to make that decision who to side with very easy for them. Um, of course, I'm talking about uh, 
the Battle of the Monongahela. Now, if you need to read a book on the Battle of the Monongahela, you don't have to go very far. Um, I'm very, I'm very proud to say uh, David's book is is the best thing that's ever been written on it. Um, maybe, certainly, probably the best thing that will ever be written on it. Uh, I'd recommend it to anyone. But for a small fee, if you write another one, you can have your put your book up here. Now, the Battle of the Monongahela. It's not just a turning point in the history of North America. It's not just a turning point in the history of of the French and Indian War. For the native peoples of Kittanning, this massive Indian village, the largest Indian village of the Ohio country, that's the moment they realize if they're going to side with someone, it's certainly going to be the French. Um, obviously, in the Battle of the Nongahela, we're going to see Braddock's army defeated by uh, a force basically one-third of French soldiers and two-thirds native warriors. But the native warriors that fight at Braddock's defeat, and this is a very important point, are for the most part not locals to the forks of the Ohio or the Ohio country. Uh, the majority of those warriors will come from the Great Lakes, longtime French allies that know the benefit of a French alliance, that have reaped the economic rewards of a French alliance, and as we talked about several times today, if we if every speaker mentions the Battle of the Monongahela, it must be a pretty uh, important moment, right, for, for this war. Uh, I'm pretty sure everyone has so far. From that moment, it convinces the warriors of the Ohio country. Uh, the French are the really only choice uh, in this war. Uh, and with Fort Duquesne already established, kegs of gunpowder in waiting, kegs of, of uh, alcohol in waiting, right, uh, just enormous quantities of gunfire and, and the weapons of war, um, they are the easy choice. So the Battle of the Monongahela will convince Shingas and Tewe, uh, these Western Delaware leaders, uh, that now is the time for war. Uh, and the Seven Years' War will come uh, and really, really fracture the colony of Pennsylvania along all those ethnic lines that I've been talking about um, since this lecture began. The Western Delaware are going to factor into the French war effort. Uh, and the French commanders of Fort Duquesne, whoever they may be at the time, are well aware of this. Uh, they are the ones that are going to arm these Western Delaware warriors. They are the ones that are going to give them their marching orders. And I say that because I don't really have a better, more accurate phrase for it. Um, but their job is going to be essentially... Uh, to wreak havoc in Pennsylvania, raid Pennsylvania's western settlements, burn them down, destroy crops, take captives. All right, the, the, the western Delaware are told they can take as many captives as they want. Uh, they can plunder and pillage as many goods uh, and as much food as they need to from the colony of Pennsylvania. The French will make sure they are armed and ready for any action they're going to take. And as we get to... Uh, 1755, the fall of 1755, uh, the effects of this are already going to be felt. On October 16th, we're going to have the opening, um, dare I say, dare I use the word massacre of the war, um, at a place called Penn's Creek. This is Scots-Irish land. This is the, the, the middle of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is bisected by mountains. So these people live just in the shadow of that mountain, and they're the ones that will take uh, most of the damage and abuse during this conflict. At Penn's Creek, we see women and children taken captive. We see uh, in ambush attacks, men killed and scalped. We see farms burned. We see animals slaughtered. Uh, it's an entirely unexpected turn of events uh, that destabilizes the entire region.
Uh, unfortunately, in our own time, with some of the horrific images we see coming out of the Middle East, we know the anger and the passion that surrounds unexpected raids like this, ambushes and attacks like this. Um, and those same sorts of fears and, and uh, you know, that, that anguish is going to permeate the colony of Pennsylvania as well. Uh, about two weeks after the Penns Creek Massacre, we'll see a similar raid by the Lenape Warriors on the Scots-Irish of the Pennsylvania frontier at a place called the Great Cove. The Scots-Irish in the center of Pennsylvania today, what is today the center of Pennsylvania, will begin demanding protection from the legislature. We live in this colony. We are British citizens. We need to be protected. We need to be defended. Send us troops. Send us money. Now is the time. The Quakers in Philadelphia, who control the assembly, they don't want to hear this. They are pacifists. This colony was founded on the idea of nonviolence. And they've already become a serious problem for the British Empire. Even when they were trying to finance Braddock's army to march in 1755, along with the other three wings of that attack into Canada and New York, every colony ponied up soldiers, money, and manpower. Um, and the Quakers in, in Pennsylvania wouldn't do it. Braddock sat in Virginia, frustrated by the fact that this colony was not providing to his cause. And what they ultimately agreed on, and this was because of Benjamin Franklin, was to send material support in terms of food and wagons uh, and the like. Uh, one of which was uh, obviously driven by Teamsters, like Daniel Boone for that matter. Um, but as the Quakers dig in and say, we won't finance the fence, the Indian raids along the frontier continue. The Scots-Irish around Carlisle, uh, along Pennsylvania's western border, call louder and louder for protection. And while the Quaker party won't hear them, the other party, William Penn's party, the Penn family party, the proprietary party, will. And they begin to woo them over to their side. Now, the proprietary party is largely comprised of landed, powerful elites uh, in the colony of Pennsylvania. That's a strange bedfellow uh, with these rough frontier types, these Scots-Irish types. But what, what brings them together is this common cause of defense. Because while the Quakers won't budge on an army, the proprietary party and the governor of Pennsylvania are very vocal in support of it. So again, politically, Pennsylvania has never been more destabilized and has never been more infighting. It's never been more distracted and it's never been weaker. And I think that was really the overall French strategy during the war. Uh, that's why those Indian raids were designed the way they were. Just wreak havoc in, in Britain's most vulnerable part, which would be the colony of Pennsylvania. There will be a construction of forts uh, in 1756 that will run through Pennsylvania. The biggest and most loud of them all was Fort Granville. It will be completely eradicated and destroyed uh, that year. And again, that was Pennsylvania's great military response, was to build a line of forts. The men who garrisoned them, garrisoned them were Scots-Irish frontiersmen. They weren't in any way funded by the state of, or the colony of Pennsylvania. They're very much more like a volunteer fire department. They're just regular people stepping up when, when time needed them. Again, Fort Granville was the most famed. Uh, Tayway, the Western Delaware leader, very famously destroyed Fort Granville, took a number of captives from it. One of the most famous is probably a name you'll recognize, a man named Simon Gurdy. If you remember Simon Gurdy, this is where his story begins in Indian country, we'll say. 
Um, <clears throat> and, and a military response is needed. And at one point, to show like uh, unity right within the government, uh, the governor of Pennsylvania, strongly in favor of military response, uh, will call on Benjamin Franklin. We're going to launch a military expedition. He asks Franklin if he wanted to lead it himself. Benjamin Franklin is asked to lead a military expedition out of Philadelphia to Fort Duquesne. And uh, man, history is funny sometimes. But that would have been really something to see uh, in a life that's already so so over so overfilled with these kind of amazing experiences. This is what Benjamin Franklin says about it. I had not, and again, he speaks very highly of himself most of the time. Here's what he'll write. I had not so good an opinion of my military abilities. Uh, I believe his professions, this is the governor, must have exceeded his real sentiments, but probably he might think that my popularity would facilitate the raising of men and my influence in the assembly, the grant of money to pay for them. Finding me not so forward to engage as he expected, the project was dropped. So Franklin was always cheerleading, really from the front. Let's raise troops. And then the governor, Robert Hunter Morris, this is not Robert Morris of later revolutionary fame, a different guy, Robert Hunter Morris, says, okay, here, you take the, you take the reins. And Franklin says, eh, maybe somebody else. Um, so at any rate, they find somebody else, and it's a person who's very much up to the task. The man they choose to lead Pennsylvania's military response uh, to the to the raids on the frontier uh, are really uh, a man who's very much of the people who are suffering the worst of it. Uh, and this is Colonel John Armstrong. Armstrong is considered a founding father of the Pennsylvania frontier, particularly amongst the Scots-Irish of the West, because he's one of them. Um, he was originally brought to the New World uh, as a surveyor for the Penn family. He's a Penn loyalist, we'll say. Uh, he's a diehard member of the proprietary party. Um, he's a surveyor. He attempted to lay out a road in 1755 that was would be in support of the Braddock Road. He was the one that laid out the, uh, the, the, the original city plan of Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which really became sort of the Scots-Irish capital of the Pennsylvania frontier. And he'll be the one chosen to lead whatever military response that Pennsylvania has. Now, everyone on the frontier understood that if you're going to strike at the heart of this, this campaign of, of fear and terror that the Lenape have been waging, really the only place to strike is going to be Kitani. Um, you could attack Fort Duquesne. That's where most of their supplies come from. But it still leaves most of the warriors uh, alone. Kitani is where the vast majority of the captives taken and the numbers upwards of 150 at this point are being held. Um, it's the center of Western Delaware life. If you took out Katanning, you would essentially, they, they hope, break the back of the uh, native warriors of the frontier. Very few people in Pennsylvania at this point have any idea what Katanning looks like. Um, they know it's hundreds of miles away. They know to get there, you have to cross the Appalachian Mountains, and then you have to get back, uh, all the while moving through enemy territory uh, with only the supplies and materials you have on your back. But luckily for the colony of Pennsylvania, there is a survivor. Uh, and he is someone who is going to have been taken captive at Catanning and actually at the cover of nightfall escaped back. 
And this person will meet uh, in a secret meeting with the governor of Pennsylvania, Robert Hunter Morris, and Colonel John Armstrong himself. And he will uh, hand draw a map uh, showing exactly what this, uh, you know, extraordinarily important military target looks like. And this is what he draws. And this is the only surviving document we have from this secret meeting in 1756, sort of laying out the groundwork of what an attack on the Indian settlement at Catanning would look like. So there's a couple things that this person gives us. Um, number one is, you can see at the top, the Allegheny River. You guys can see that there. Uh, on the, on the, what would be the western bank of it, which is the top of the photo, there's a small smattering of cabins on the left. Okay, uh, it's a Shingus, so this is where Shingus lives. Uh, for Armstrong and for the governor, Robert Hunter Morris, uh, he is your biggest high-value target. Shingus, by this point, has become the face of terror and fear and destruction on the frontier. He is undoubtedly the heart, the leader of the Delaware people in the West. If you raid Katanning, one of your primary objectives is to take him out in any way, shape, or form. But we see some other elements on here. Uh, to the south of the river, what well, looks like the south of it on this map, it's really the east, uh, is a large cornfield. Okay, so this uh, escapee from Catanning talks about that. Uh, we see cabins for uh, Tamakwa, the beaver, as they call them, uh, as well as on the far left, uh, you see the home of Captain Jacobs, which was the English name for Tayway, the second in command, if you want to use that term, uh, of the uh, Western Delaware peoples. There's a lot of interesting elements here. Again, this, this captive couldn't give all the detail, but I think it's worth noting what he does provide. Um, along with the cabin of Shingas, the beaver, which is Tamakwa, uh, Captain Jacobs, which is Tayway, he'll say that there is uh, a long house where the frolics and the war dances are held. One of the things I do in this book, and it has gotten me into a little bit of trouble uh, with academic reviewers, but after you know, hearing, hearing Jim speak, I don't feel so bad about it, uh, was that I, I relate a lot of the atrocities that happened at Catanning. And if you read my book, uh, War in the Peaceful Kingdom, it's not an easy read. It's pretty gruesome. Uh, there's beatings, there's torture, there's, of course, you know, execution of hostages, there's um, acts of cannibalism in, in some cases. Um, it's, it's really gruesome, and they were relayed in great detail by the people that would escape Catanning at one point. Um, and I put them in my book, and people said it was, I don't know, insensitive? I don't, like, they gave us those stories for a reason, right? Um, and it's not my job to sanitize them, and I actually did leave out some of the more gruesome stuff. I tried to do it in a way that was, you know, you know uh, I don't want to use the word tasteful, but at least calculated. But at any rate... Catanning was a place of great fear for a lot of Pennsylvanians because they knew the, the real sort of uh, physical nature of Indian war could often go with a lot of, a lot of atrocity at times. Um, so with this information in mind, John Armstrong is uh, given his orders to march to Catanning uh, with a threefold objective. Number one, rescue, and this is most important, as many captives as possible. Uh, over the last year, the colony of Pennsylvania had lost about 150 people um, at, at the minimum, uh, and the colony believes they're all being held at Catanning. Uh, number two was to capture or kill the high-value targets, kill preferably of Shingas and Tayway. And number three, in a longer-term strategy, if you take out Catanning, 
you eliminate native people's ability to wage war in the future. So 1755 and 1756 was a very bloody moment for the colony of Pennsylvania. Um, maybe 1757 can be better. Now, a couple things spurned on this military action. As the raids got worse, the Scots-Irish at one point demanded uh, that they would actually march on Philadelphia and attack it themselves if there wasn't a military response. You know, the Scots-Irish are pretty fiery, so a lot of people in the capital didn't put too much stock in that. But then some of the German communities further east were attacked. And the Germans began this, this rumor that they were going to march on Philadelphia. And when you get the, you know, the, the fire burning in the Germans that much, the Palatines, that they're going to march on the city, things are clearly bad. So there was kind of a stalemate here. Benjamin Franklin worked this all out. Here's what they did. They couldn't raise troops without raising tax money. The Penn family refused to pay any taxes at all whatsoever on their land. That's what they were stuck on. So what Franklin negotiated was a one-time gift from the governor, Thomas Penn, of 60,000 pounds. Um, and that's an, exactly, as it were, the price needed to raise a, a military response. Um, Penn would deliver the gift. It wasn't a tax. It was a one-time gift, whatever. Um, the assembly then raised the army, uh, and Pennsylvania was ready to respond. The catch of that all is a lot of that 60,000 from the governor um, was actually money that was owed to him from rents in the colony. And he just kind of forgave the rents and just moved the money over. So he ended up not having to pay anything. He just kind of took the loss. Whatever it takes, a lot of it's frustrating, horrific politics is really all it is. Um, but the army is raised. It'll be 350 men. It'll be in seven companies. And it is an absolute uh, who's who of Scots-Irish frontiersmen of Pennsylvania's western frontier. John Armstrong will lead 50 of these men. His brother, George Armstrong, will lead 50 of these men. Guy named Hugh Mercer. It's going to be a very big deal in the American Revolution. He'll lead 50 men. Uh, the sheriff of uh, Cumberland County, very local, respected figure amongst the Scots Irish, a sheriff named John Potter. He'll lead 50 of these men. And my favorite character in this whole story uh, is this fiery reverend named John Steele. They call him the Fighting Parson. You know, he was one of these guys that gets on the pulpit and, you know, slams his fist and. If there was, you know, talk radio back then, he would have certainly had a show. He was one of these kind of guys, you know. Um, they gave him 50 men. He had no military experience, but they knew the men would rally around him. And they began their march into the West. And that is the sort of unlikely story of how Pennsylvania moved pieces together to lead this, uh, to lead this attack. Now, it's very important to understand what John Armstrong's leading against Katanding is not uh, a battle, okay? Um, it is very specifically designed to be a raid. So the idea is they're going to get in there when the native peoples don't expect it. They're going to hit them hard. They're going to save as many hostages as possible. They're going to destroy the city and they're going to get out. The last thing they want or are prepared for is a firefight. Armstrong says that most of the men of the 350 that march, incidentally, they only get about 300 by the time they get there because of desertions, are sort of like, he describes them as like the dregs of Pennsylvania society. Most, by this point, it's September. Uh, most people are farming and, and working their land. These are all people that don't have land. So they're essentially like, you know, near-do-wells or idle people, I guess you'd say. But this is a lot of the men that makes up, according to Armstrong, his army. The way they're going to attack is the dotted line you see there. Okay. This is called the Frankstown Path. 
Um, it cuts essentially across Pennsylvania east to west. It's, it's, um, it's hilly, you know, but fairly level. Um, you can move quick on it. Problem with the Frankstown Path is that it's, it's regularly uh, patrolled by and used by native warriors. So Armstrong knows that when they go on this path, they'll probably risk being spotted, but he believes it's the fastest way west. And if you follow the dotted line all the way to the edge of that, that image, you'll see a little triangle that says Katanning. And the Frankstown Path will lead right to it. If you follow down the river, you'll also uh, find your way to eventually Fort Duquesne. <clears throat> when Armstrong's men get about five miles from Katanning, they're going to see it's nighttime, okay? They've been marching for, for several days. There's going to be a campfire with what his scouts tell him are three or four Indians around it. That scout was wrong. It was more like 20, okay? That's going to come into play later. But in order to not alert them, uh, Armstrong will order his men to take off their packs, which include uh, their essentials, right? Their blankets, their food, uh, anything that would, you know, sustain them throughout the day. And they put them into a big pile on a hillside. This is known as Blanket Hill. Uh, and he leaves a couple of his men behind to watch them. He'll even leave his horses there. Because the idea is when they go in for the raid, they don't want retreating Indians to come here and steal all their belongings. So they leave a contingent of men there. They'll take their 300 men stumbling through the dark, and they'll sort of begin to initiate this plan, which is a raid on this sleeping Indian village as the sun comes up. Take them by surprise, destroy everything, get your 150 hostages at least right, and get them out of there. On September 8th, Armstrong will take a winding hill in the middle of the night, if you can imagine this, quietly, which he seems to do it, to the Allegheny River, uh, and they'll prepare for the attack. At sunrise, the raid is set to begin. Armstrong is going to divide his men into three groups. The largest portion of them are going to charge into the village. He sends a third of his army on the hills that overlook Catanning. So here's a look at modern Catanning. If you have any interest in going there, okay, that's, that's what you have waiting for you. Um, he puts his men on the very top of that hill. You can see the hills are still there behind the village. And the idea is they're sweeping, they'll attack the village, then those men in a delayed action will come down the hill and finish off whoever's in the village. That's the idea. The third wing, I said, is, is watching the blankets in the rear uh, to the east. Okay? Um, as the sun comes up, it seems like this battle is going to go off exactly as it's planned. Um, a couple things are surprising them. Number one, almost none of the warriors are sleeping in their cabins. They're all sleeping down in the cornfield, which is by the river. And Armstrong can't make sense of this, but the man that had escaped the village and gave them intelligence was with him. And he explained that the Indians slept in the cornfield because uh, the gnats, it's summertime, it's September, the gnats were so bad. Uh, and they'd make fires in the cornfield, put out the fires, and the smoke would keep the bugs away. Um, those gnats were called punkies. And the gnats were so bad in the Allegheny River Valley, and they still are for this matter. Uh, one of the towns was called Punky Sutenic, uh, the place of the flies. And of course, that's today Punxsutawney. So that's where that comes from. Um, so the Indians were sleeping in the cornfield. Armstrong said, okay, we'll jump into the village. 
I'll send some men into the cornfield. We'll take them completely by surprise. As they were moving into the uh, into the town, one of the Indian warriors woke up, uh, and and Armstrong relates that he yells out uh, "Shawanik," Shawanik, which he believes to mean uh, like an alarm, like someone's here attacking us. That's when it kind of descends into chaos. The sneak attack begins. Um, Armstrong's men are pouring fire into the village. Get a nice image of it here. Out of one of the cabins comes a teenage girl, uh, a white captive. She puts her arms up. They shoot her. Um, they shoot her through the arm uh, with uh, essentially um, they call it goose shot. So you're looking like a BB. But she does survive. But it kind of just shows how chaotic and unprepared really Armstrong's men were for the battle. Um, his men will rush into the cornfield. They'll clear out the cornfield. They'll kill most of the warriors in there. Um, but by the time sort of all the chaos settles down, the battle kind of develops its own rhythm and its own homeostasis. Again, this was never meant to be a battle. It was meant to be a quick raid. Uh, Teiwei comes out of the cabin. He's that second in command. And he'll begin telling his warriors, uh, get the women and children into the forests. Get them out. Imagine that. Uh, he orders the men, get into the cabins. Armstrong will note that Shingis, the leader of this whole thing, is nowhere to be found. And it's true. We have no evidence he was there on the day of the battle, not even across the river at his cabin. All of the warriors are listening to Captain Jacobs, Teiwei, uh, so it seems like they're aware that Shingis is not there. Uh, and Shingis will put his men into their cabins, and they begin shooting at the Pennsylvanians. And that's how the battle looks. The Pennsylvanians will be hiding behind trees, firing down from a, from an elevated platform into the town. Um, the Indians will be in their cabins firing out. And Armstrong actually notes that the Indians had started cutting portals in their cabins, shooting out of them just like the English or French would. So you see this kind of blended new fighting style emerging on the frontier. All the while, Armstrong is pouring fire into the town. He's waiting for his group of men up on the hill to rush down, right? The cavalry is coming, so to speak, run in. They, they abandoned them. They, they, they left the field of battle. They didn't even try to come in and fight. Um, it's, it's a pretty startling turn of events for the way this event's going to be talked about. Uh, from inside his cabin, Teiwei will be giving orders. Um, the battle that was supposed to be over fast, hit fast, hit hard, and be done will go on for hours. Armstrong writes that, um, returning fire upon the houses was ineffectual. So you know what this has turned into. They're taking pot, shot at each, pot shots at each other. There's no strategic advantage. Armstrong does something uh, pretty, pretty slick at this point. Uh, good thinking. He tells his men, run into the, into the village, set all the cabins on fire, and then run back out. And that effectively puts these warriors who are hiding in these cabins on a ticking clock because eventually those cabins are going to burn. And that was an old Indian technique. For what it's worth, that's how they took Fort Granville uh, earlier that year in 1756. From inside the cabin, they start shouting at each other back into the woods. These are, these are groups of people that, that do know each other. Captain Jacobs was, Teiwei, well-known in the East right before war began. Um, Armstrong's men began shouting, you have to come out sometime. Your cabin's burning. Teiwei very famously yells out, I eat fire. This is what he says. I eat fire. We have two sources that will uh, that will tell us that. Here's a reenactment at the, the Battle of Catanning from the uh, from the 250th in 2006. 
the big moment of the battle, the moment that all the eyewitnesses remember, the moment that kind of scars the Indian world uh, and, and, and Pennsylvania forever, the symbolic sort of collapse, if you would, of William Penn's Peaceful Kingdom in 1756 comes when uh, Captain Jacob's Tayway's cabin explodes. Tayway will run out when the fire gets to be too hot. He'll be gunned down. His cabin ignites and explodes. The other cabins around him explode. Apparently, uh, the warriors have been storing up their gunpowder within these cabins. And when they ignite, it's these massive booms. They actually write about them at Fort Duquesne, but they hear it, uh, which is at least 20 miles down river. Uh, it's, it's an enormous explosion. Um, you can see some of the comments here that we have from uh, Armstrong himself. Uh, he says, the leg and thigh of an Indian with a child of three or four years, uh, such a, explodes such a height that they appeared as nothing and fell into the adjacent cornfield. So these cabins blow up and pieces of people <coughs> sail through the air. It's a, it's a horrifically gruesome moment uh, that is going to be the start of a horrifically gruesome war. Okay, so interestingly enough, Armstrong wasn't aware of this. There are French officers on site during the battle. They are across the river. So from what we can tell, they never engage in a firefight with the British. And that would have changed this story a lot. It seems that what they're doing is uh, ferrying captives out of Catanning, taking them across the river away from the Pennsylvanians, and ordering them deeper, taken deeper into the Ohio country. So the French are really just there moving hostages farther into harm's way, uh, making sure that they don't get given back to the Pennsylvanians because of their strategic value. Um, there's a soldier at Fort Duquesne named uh, Nicolas Renault, and he will tell us that the commander on site at the Battle of Catania, the French commander, was Monsieur Normandie. And we don't know exactly who that is, but in the sources, uh, there were two men named Normandie at Fort Duquesne in 1756. Uh, one was Joseph Godefroy de Normandie, and the other was Jean-Baptiste Godefroy de Normandie. So one of those two men were there, and apparently... They were shot through the thigh, probably from an errant round that fired across the river. We don't see major French involvement in the actual battle. Again, they're just moving women and children captives deeper into the Ohio country. Now, um, when Captain Jacob's cabin explodes, that's the big moment. That's the end of the battle. Armstrong and his men will slink their way back to Philadelphia. And this is where, for the sake of our time, uh, politics is really going to take over. Uh, because from 1755 to 1756 to 1757, really the British didn't have much in the way of a major victory uh, anywhere in this global war for empire. And Catanning was their lone bright spot. Um, as a result of the battle, they would mint this medallion. You can see it says, Catanning uh, destroyed by Colonel Armstrong. September 8th, 1756. And there you see Armstrong, right, pointing to his men. Uh, you see an Indian warrior falling into the river. The cabin's on fire. You know, Armstrong noted this is actually wrong. The river should be on the other side. Um, but at any rate, that's fine. From what we can tell, this is one of the very first, if not the first, military medallions ever minted in North America. Uh, this is at the Met in New York. I believe it's in their archives. They have a, they have one of these coins. Um, they will host a major ceremony for John Armstrong in Philadelphia. Thomas Penn will actually come from England to give him a ceremonial sword. 
All of his men will get a copy of that medal. Armstrong's was silver. The men were all given bronze. Uh, they lined up in formation. It was a big celebratory event. Uh, newspapers around the, the British world and certainly around America talked about the victory at Catanning. So there's a couple issues with that. Number one, the proprietary party loved this because they could rub it in the face of the Quakers and say, hey, it's an election year. Look what we got done. You've been fighting this from day one. And it's going to hurt the Quakers in the election. Number two, John Armstrong himself is going to say, I mean, I, I like the attention, but I don't know how much of a victory this was. Okay, so why? Number one, there's at least 150 hostages in Catanning. Their primary mission was to save those people. They brought back exactly seven. Some of them were killed on the way back uh, when they were retreating from Catanning by uh, Indian snipers. One of the women, at least one of them, was from as far away as Winchester, Virginia. So it shows how when you get into the Ohio country, right, you're kind of taken in different directions. Number two, Captain Jacobs, by all accounts, was dead. We see him uh, vanish from the historical record, Tayway, vanish from the record. Armstrong never mentions Tayway being killed. Uh, he just says an Indian was shot leaving the cabin. Uh, other people there say it was definitely Tayway. Why Armstrong doesn't say that, maybe he wants to diminish him just as another Indian, I don't know. Um, but we see him vanish from the historical record. Shingus will be around for a long time. We'll see Shingus uh, really vanish after 1763 during the siege of Fort Pitt and Pontiac's Rebellion. Um, whenever he's very famously, Simona Couillet uh, passes out the smallpox blankets. That's when we see Shingus vanish. So potentially he was killed from that. But he, he'll still be on the prowl. Uh, and very much active in a military in a military capacity for the rest of the French and Indian War. The biggest sticking point that, as historians will see, uh, is that the other objective of the Catanning raid was to destroy the village so they couldn't do any more damage in the year to come. But in 1757, we're actually going to see the number of raids increase, not decrease. Now, less people will be killed, which is a good thing. Uh, but there was more Indian raids coming out of western Pennsylvania, coming out of the Ohio country in 1757. At any rate, Armstrong is celebrated for this victory. He'll go on to have an illustrious career um, in the Continental Army during the American Revolution. Uh, the way I choose to end my book, I think it's a very telling scene. After the Revolution, uh, big parcels of western Pennsylvania are given to Revolutionary War soldiers and officers for their service. The, uh, the state of Pennsylvania will assign the old site of the Catanning village to John Armstrong. Uh, that's going to be his land as a gift. On the deed, when it says, you know, what would you like to name your tract of land? For all of his doubts, all those years later, Armstrong calls the land victory. He says victory. Um, so the victory of Catanning, maybe it was a victory, maybe it was not. Uh, but in a, again, very sort of dangerous and dark time for the British Empire. Um, you know, it stands as one of those seminal flashpoints on the Western frontier. So, so thank you guys very much. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.